When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. If you are a fan of extreme sports and racing, you are not going to want to miss some of the upcoming interviews that Brian Deegan has lined up for his podcast, The Deegans. Brian is sitting down with his friends Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Ricky Carmichael to talk about their careers in all things extreme. Be sure to subscribe on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and many other podcast apps so you can get the new episodes every week. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Derek Bodner, senior writer for The Athletic Philadelphia and 76ers expert. Wanted to have him on beyond him being a, a favorite guest of mine who I haven't had on in a long time, is to help make sense of not only where the Sixers are right now, but also where they're going. And no stone is really left unturned. We go through a lot of players in specific detail, the team, the coaching staff, playoff matchups, all that fun stuff. And it was a really great conversation brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign up bonus. Episode runs just over an hour. Really enjoyed it. I love doing these in-depth ones with great guests and this certainly qualifies. So hope you dig it as well. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Part of why I want to have you on is because you're a great guest. Another part of it is because I have had more trouble figuring out the Sixers than almost any team in the NBA. And so I want to start with this question, which is sometimes for teams, I admit, you know, I I try to watch a lot of everybody and it's imperfect. You know, you, you you get enough that you feel like you're confident, but you don't get everything. And so what I was asking you was I've been having trouble figuring out this team. Is that because I'm not as ingrained as you are, or is it something that you're struggling with as well? No, it, it, you are certainly not alone. I think in, in, in many respects, you might even be tougher when you live the day in the day out and you get all of the ups and downs because this team certainly has plenty of both. You know, I think if you would zoom back and say, what does this team do well and what do they struggle at? It would more or less follow the blueprint of what we would have expected when the season started. You know, they're a good defensive team. They dominate the glass. They run their offense through Joel Embiid. They struggle to create shots from the perimeter and they struggle with streakiness shooting from the perimeter. And I think that all kind of chives with what we would have expected when the season started. So in in that respect, I think they're an easy team to figure out. But in terms of a night to night consistency, they're maddening. And in terms of maybe the degree to which they're good or bad at what we expected, I think that's where it's tough to really figure out. You know, I think this team is a good defensive team. They haven't really ever been great this year. And I think a lot of people, myself included, expect them to be one of, if not the best in the league, and maybe even of recent history, one of the better teams of recent history. And they haven't reached that level. And some of that is, you know, how much are they holding back? Like Joel Embiid specifically, how much effort does he have to give in the playoffs? That he's maybe conserving right now. How much is he in his, you know, in, in his mind, how much is he worried about how he overexerted himself in the first half last year and ran himself into knee problems and how much it is like how, how much can he ramp up in the playoffs? And you don't really usually talk about that with a team that's never won anything. But I think I think that's very much on their minds. How much will they adjust their defensive scheme 
you know, very recently they, they had a slight alteration to how Al Horford defends a pick and roll. Well, how much more will they adjust that when it's the playoffs? And how much higher of a ceiling can they reach defensively because of that? And how much of the sh- the, the offensive struggles over the last month, like clearly this is never going to be a good-looking offensive team, but how much of the struggles over the last month is a team that can't really get to the rim off the dribble in the half court, which makes them reliant on three-point shooting to be competitive? And how much of these struggles are just, well, they're struggling more than they will at various points, or at least over a seven-game playoff series. So there's, it's very much like this team just never, nothing ever looks easy for this team, especially offensively. Like everything they do, it seems very concerted. And, and like there's every shot seems like a tough shot. Every, every possession seems like it's on the brink of a negative play, even though their turnovers are actually way down. We can get into that, but nothing comes easy with this team. And because of that, I think it's very tough to really pin down what their upside is and what you can expect out of them when games truly start mattering. That That's a great way of putting it. And another part of this mosaic for me has been that as somebody who you know generally the games that I choose to watch for a team that is obviously very good is teams is games when they face other very good teams and yeah. some of the proof of concept, pretty good in those games yeah exactly like I mean yeah. the Christmas day against the Bucks where Joel Embiid was phenomenal defensively like that I, I, I Nate and I each independently picked that as our like most impressive win of the month of December because it was just it was eye-opening and they've had wins like that and you know, in some ways, paralleling Miami, some of the Sixers' losses have been more of the maddening variety. Even even like that loss to the Magic, I think that was after John Isaac got hurt. Um, where I mean, Orlando couldn't score against anybody, and why are they scoring a little bit against against the Sixers? And then they had that crazy comeback, which fell short. And generally, to me, the way that works for a team that is good and that everybody kind of knows is good is that well, if they're beating the good teams, that means they're trying and they're they're doing all that, and then they just they let their guard down a little bit against inferior opposition, which, by and large, I'm o- I'm more okay with than the reverse. Like, and, and so that that leads into the weird stuff too, because like for me, as, as strange as this might sound to some people, like I think some people are going to get this, and some people are going to be like, "You sound insane." It's I would rather if a team is going to lose games and they're good, I would rather have them lose to bad teams than good teams because that I can explain that away more easily where if if the goal is championship contention or something like that does that make sense to you it makes sense you know i think i think there's so i mean first of all it, it's at home it's so striking this team at home and on on the road they're like 19 and 2 at home i think they have like a plus 10 net rating they're pretty much unbeatable and then on the road they're 7 and 14 and they can lose some real head scratching games where you question anything you thought you believed about this team most of most of their bad losses i mean all of their bad losses really outside of, of maybe one against miami at home that was a struggle and then dallas who, who are good teams uh, but it was startling because they just don't lose at home but all of their bad losses really have come on the road so how much is playing down to their competition how much is some real weakness on the road that they need to correct in the playoffs and it's it's I agree with you. I, this, this team has more consistently, you know, last year they really struggled against almost every contender in the Eastern Conference. I think they were one and three against Boston. I think they only had one win against Toronto, one win against Milwaukee. Uh, they did not play the top of the Eastern Conference well in the regular season. And then they ended up going to seven games against Toronto. And we all know about the quadru- quadruple doink and, and how close they were to reaching a conference finals. But this is a team that is the complete opposite this year. Like they come out and they play like they have beaten all of the good Eastern Conference teams. Uh, they lost a couple here lately to Indy without Joel Embiid. But like you go back to when Embiid's healthy, they've beaten Toronto, they've beaten Milwaukee, they've beaten Boston and, and Miami and, and Indy and everyone that you would match up against a series against in the playoffs. They have they have handled sometimes with ease. So are these losses to 
Orlando. Like, they blew two games against Orlando. Two, you know, very recently, you had a, a loss against Washington. And then you mix that in with just a, you know, last month of the season where they have not played good basketball. They've lost nine of their last 14 games or something in that realm. And it is... You know, I think there's it, it, it's just so tough because there's so obvious strengths and weaknesses that it's hard not to see those weaknesses come out in the losses and panic because of that. But they certainly do have a level they can reach. It's just nobody really knows how consistently they can reach it. It's it's one of the more frustrating teams. If I were a fan, it would be one of the more frustrating teams to watch because you just tr- you, you truly don't know night in and night out. Another important part of the equation is that it wasn't a question going into the season, but there is, again, a pretty significant disparity when Joel Embiid is on the floor and off the floor. I mean, we expected the Sixers to have a great defense when he's out there. That has been true. Using, using cleaning the glasses, garbage time filter, the Sixers are allowing 102 points per 100 possessions when Embiid is on the floor. That is sparkling. That's one of the best one of the best in the entire league. It's actually meaningfully better than last year. Not the same height as some of the some of the other years but that's okay I mean the league is fundamentally different as well like you know being having a 102 defensive rating is different than having a 102 defensive rating a few years ago and having Al Horford when you know I mean obviously now it's different because Embiid's straight up missing time so now they're more non-Horford non-Embiid minutes and and I think that's one worthwhile way of separating out the Sixers is that when Joel Embiid has been on the floor I think they have been about the same type of dominant team that I expected. A little bit maybe worse offensively, but I wasn't trusting their offense necessarily either. And then the non-Embiid minutes have been better, but there have been more of them than I think we all hoped because we we wanted Embiid to be healthier. At the same point, especially with this current injury being a hand thing and not lower body, which is always what scares you with big dudes, and this issue should Full, be fully corrected in plenty of time is that maybe this just in a weird way this just gets fewer miles on his tires and kind of you know it doesn't work out to the benefit for seating purposes but maybe it does in terms of keeping him fresher than brett brown allowed him to be last year yeah i mean so uh, i guess what i would say in terms of of this hand injury being a concern if, for, for the playoffs directly it's not like I, I i don't worry about um about i mean it's it's a ring finger in his non-shooting hand like he'll be fine for the playoffs in that regard and I agree with you, like in terms of wear and tear on a lower body, which was an issue last year, there can be a benefit there. I think my big concern would be Joel has never done a good job of keeping himself in game shape when he's not in the act of playing basketball on a regular basis. And oh, that that's would be a really my good point. I hadn't thought about that. Biggest concern. And look, he should be back with, you know, two months left of the regular season to work his way back to where he needs to be or, or, or at least a month, a month and a half. So hopefully that's not a concern. But that would be my biggest concern because I agree with you that keeping his lower body fresh for the playoffs would be huge. Like they need Joel Embiid to play like Joel Embiid, and that's never really happened in the playoffs for a variety of reasons. Uh, but the the conditioning would be my, my my biggest concern there. Another factor that national people and not, and locals alike have been have been tracking is is Ben Simmons and his development this year yeah. moving forward, and it's been somewhat of a mixed bag i mean the jump shot is always going to generate a ton of attention and that is still not there though i mean at last i checked he was shooting 40 percent from three but that's two of five and <laughs> he is maybe the ultimate example of something that uh nate and i and you've done a good job of this too have been talking about over the years which is percentage is important but frequency and percentage combined is significantly more important and so if a guy's taking five threes on the year you don't defend him like he's shooting 40 percent but so that's one part of it but something that has impressed me and you can also get into the counter that not having him beat on the floor especially with the structure of the Sixers lineup the last few weeks it it 
has allowed that there are times when you see a little bit more of the theory of where Ben Simmons' game could be going because of the mem- remembering that he is still so so very young. So like even if the jump shot either never comes around or takes longer than we all ho- what we all hoped and expected, that there are still ways to impact the game positively both on and off ball. Oh, for sure. And his growth defensively, I, I almost think it's overlooked because it's impossible not to talk about his jump shot and his offensive failings. But his his growth defensively, like he is one of the, I would say, three, not, not three to five best defenders per se, but three to five where you have the least amount of weaknesses. Like there is no real matchup outside of a bruising big man that I say Ben Simmons has no shot against that. Like he's a tenacious on ball defender. He has almost as much versatility as anyone in the league. He is a terror off the ball in terms of his instincts and ability to play the passing lanes. And he does all of this sort of without really being out of position too much. He is, he is really developed into one of the most versatile, unique defenders on the planet. And if, I mean, I know you scouted him heavily at LSU. If you had told me that a few years ago, I would have thought you were crazy. So his development defensively and the way he's bought in and been able to make use of his tools and make use of his tools really without, you know, he, he he's, does not have a whole lot of like standing reach and stuff where you would impact shots at the rim. And his ability to still become one of the most versatile defenders has been, I mean, it, it's, he has bought in more than I ever would have expected. And I give him a lot of credit for that. Yeah. And his, let's, let's, let's talk about that for a bit. I, I think okay. that Simmons, going back, you brought up the LSU stuff. And what I remember about him, and there, there is incidentally a parallel to Markel Fultz here, where the there are a couple different elements that are really important for defense. One of them is the physical tools. So how well do you move around the court, your relative size, how well do you use your size, all those sorts of things. Another part of it is your intelligence. How well can you figure out what the opponent is doing? And But then the third part is the caring index, really. And what was so concerning about Simmons at LSU and Markel Fultz at Washington was that that was so exceedingly low. And yes, both yep. of those teams were not competitive. And so get into that factor. And for me, this is why I, I believed more in Simmons' defense than a lot of other guys like him was that you could tell how smart he was and how well he understood the game. And a lot, and I fear that a lot less when, with creative ball handlers because you have to understand a lot of elements well and so that those things transfer. And like LeBron, I mean, I, I wasn't ever – I mean, also his physical tools are ungodly for a bunch of reasons. But – yeah, no, I thought he'd figure it out defensively, and, and he has. And I would say LeBron, got, in his prime, was better than I even expected there. And with Simmons, it wasn't a sure thing. It was far, far from a sure thing. But for me, it was more plausible for him than for some other people. But you still didn't expect it, considering how just bad yeah. it was at LSU. No, Rich Hoffman, my uh, cohort over at the Athletic Philly, we always say like he didn't get down in a stance once at LSU. During the whole year, I don't think he got down in defensive stance once. And it was a combination of, you know, he didn't really want to be there in college. LSU wasn't a competitive team. And the way the NBA has trended, you know, when he bought in and you look at those physical tools and the way he, he can move on the perimeter for his size, it really is. It's almost unfair. And the NBA has trended towards really valuing those types of players and really making use of that kind of a unique skill set. It is it has really been fun to watch. And I wish I could say fun to watch without the caveat of, but he's completely maddening on the other end of the court. But it, I, I do give him a lot of credit for that. Offensively, it is, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. Like he, here's what I'll say. I don't think before this past summer, he had really made the jump shot as much of a focus as he should have. I think he got by a lot on his athletic gifts. I do think he put in the work over the summer. And when I look at even and I hate I, I, I despise what I'm about to say, because everybody in the NBA can shoot in a practice or in a warm up line. But when you looked at him in previous years, like there is a depressing number of people listening to this podcast. I could have said, I think you might be a better jump shooter than him. 
and like for an NBA player who devoted his life to it, like that should not be the case. Like even bad NBA jump shooters should be better than 99.9% of the people listening to this podcast. And Ben Simmons was not like that. He did not shoot a jumper like an NBA player. Now he does. And you watch the way he shoots in, and look, his form is not anywhere near textbook. You would never teach a kid to shoot like this. But the way he, how, how consistent the repetition is, how consistent the mediocre form is, which doesn't sound right, but like Sean Marion never shot the ball well. He shot it consistently. But how consistent the form is, how consistent the results are, how consistent the spin is and the hand placement, it's night and day from where it was in previous years. Like he can go around the around the world in a, a pregame shooting warm-up and he can look like an NBA player. And he the two he shot in game, you look at it and you say, okay, look, first of all, you're never going to ask him to like create like shoot a three-pointer off the dribble coming off the screen. That's just not, that's not in the cards right now. We all know that. You're only asking him to take a corner three-point catch-and-shoot shot when he has 15 feet of space between him and the defender. So they can't do that anymore. So maybe he can accidentally get a closeout and he can attack and the Sixers can have like an odd man rush going towards the rim where his height and size and creativity can really be a factor. You just need him to do that. He can do that right now. And the two times this year, and it sounds preposterous that I'm saying that, but the two times this year he did that, he looked competent. Like this is something that he can repeat. This is a conversation we shouldn't be having. Again, just in the catch and shoot corner three point shot when he's wide open. The fact that he's not is maddening. And look, would that magically solve all the Sixers problems? No, of course not. Like at the end of the day, if you wanted to build a perfect, <clears throat> if you want to build a perfect team, a perfect offense around Joel Embiid, I think you uh, around Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, which is never going to be a perfect pairing to begin with because they're so two different styles of players. But if you want to do that, I always say like the third piece that you would get is someone like a Dame Lillard, somebody who really can create off the dribble, come off the pick and roll, unlock some of Simmons in the role man game, a threat to score at all three levels, really that step back game that would pull out a defense, somebody of that sort, maybe in a, a, a more realistically acquirable sense. And I, I bring this up because maybe they could have had a shot at him this summer. Someone like Malcolm Brogdon or someone like they thought Markel Fultz would be like you would have Simmons off ball. And in order to do that, he needs to space to the corner. He needs to provide spacing when that ball handler is playing a lot like a pick and roll game with Joel Embiid. He needs to space that when Joel Embiid is off ball. So I don't really look at Simmons and say, I need him to become a 20 point per game scorer and do that. He needs a pull up shot. Is that a great end goal? Of course it is. But you need a him to be willing to play off the ball, B him to be capable playing off the ball. And in order to do that, you need to see more progress in that jump shot. And I think a lot of people will look at it and be like, well, if it's not going to be a, a, a good shot now, why should he take it? And it's just, there's a, there's a, a step in between where he is and where he needs to be. And I, 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 so much of this right now is mental and like a fear of failure that in order to get there, he needs to break out of his comfort zone. And the fact that he just refuses to do it, it's, it's very frustrating. I haven't articulated this well, and hopefully, I, I think that you just set the table well for me to finally explain this idea, which is that part of why for a long time I was higher on Simmons, and you know, I, I, I dropped him in my players 23 and under rankings for this past year for a couple different reasons, but I think that it, it was very challenging for me to think about Simmons' development for this reason. He has so many physical tools, but what he needed to do to become the absolute like insane monster that he has the capability of being, those changes were more wholesale and will take longer than for a lot of other players. However, he has the capability, and that's that. It was hard to reconcile that. And so, like with shooting, you're talking about how there are these multiple phases. One part is getting your form right. Another is getting your confidence and making it repeatable. Like I talk a lot. Um, I don't do this as much on the pod or even in my writing about when I'm watching a player 
you know, it, like when I was at Team USA stuff or, or at Hoop Summit or anything like that, one of the things I'm looking at is the repeatability of their shot. Is it are they jumping the same every time? Are, are there are is their arm motion the same? Getting into all those basics, and I, I think about it more with a 17 year old because if they have it by that point, I'm not as worried. And if you're 23, then it's a different conversation. But so with Simmons, why that originally I was hopeful and why it started scaring me was because in some ways it's it's an act of faith because elements like. And it's not just the jump shot. The other one is learning how to play as a ball-dominant player to provide value when the ball is not in your hands. Those are really the two big things that Ben Simmons needed because his defensive game is so advanced. And I think it is underappreciated for some of the reasons you talked about. And those two things are two of the, if you don't have it, hardest things to develop in the NBA because in-game reps are really challenging and they're, they, they take a lot of hard work to practice. So building a jump shot from scratch, and understanding, okay, I don't have the ball, and my, I'm not confident in my jump shot yet. Where do I stand? How do I attack? What is the cadence of my role within the offense? That's really hard. There aren't many guys who, who aren't big, who aren't like you know standing around the basket, who have ever really figured that out. And so for me with Simmons, it was, well, crap, if that's what he has to do, he can do it, but I'm going to have to see it. And that is the other part that has been positive, including during this non-MB time, is I think he's on the, of the non-shooting part, I think his positioning and attack mentality has gotten better. Yeah, certainly at times. You know, I think so much of of where he could grow offensively stems from not only the jump shot and the act of taking the game, but the confidence in it. Like, he, he shies away from contact at the rim a lot because, I mean, I, he doesn't want to get to the free throw line. He doesn't have confidence in that, that free throw shot. He doesn't attack in the fourth quarter nearly as much as he does in the first three quarters. Again, largely because you can see that I don't think he's confident going to the free throw line. So he leaves a lot of opportunities on the board in that regard. But I do agree. I think a lot of his off-ball movement and, and finding a way to be valuable off the ball, I think it's gotten it's gotten better. And the Six have gotten a little more creativity. They don't just drop him in the dunker spot quite as much as he used to. Uh, but he has, I mean, he has, like, he's, he's whether it's post position, cutting off the ball, um, he has gotten better. It's just there's there's still a, a a pretty big disconnect, and part of the problem is they rely on him now more than they did in previous years. There's no there's no Jimmy Butler to put in a pick and roll. There's no JJ Redick to put in a DHO with Embiid, who is really maybe your best source of getting Embiid an easy look. There's no theory of what Markel Fultz could be in the ball handler and the pick and roll creator that was on the team before then. So I think they need Ben to be something he's not more than they ever have, and because he hasn't grown there, it's maybe overshadowed some of the growth he has made in other aspect of his, aspects of his offense. Something else I wanted to talk with you about ties in with what you're just saying with that Markel Fultz spot. And I thought getting Josh Richardson when when it looked like Jimmy Butler was going to leave, I mean, the, the pivot, if you will, of getting Josh Richardson and then using some of the cap space on Al Horford, it was a, a pretty amazing turn of events because of, of how, it, how it led to it. But it is true that as much as I love Josh Richardson, his... You know, offensively in particular, his fit within that is different. Now, he's had some really shocking jump shooting games, including, I mean, he basically made every jump shot imaginable against the Bucks on that Christmas Day game. Offensively, defensively, how are you feeling about him about halfway through season one? I mean, I, I like Josh Richardson a lot. I like most of the individual pieces on his team a lot as individual players. You know, I think I think Richardson is at times a miscast. Like, at times, he will be your primary half-court creator, your primary half-court pick-and-roll threat. 
And that's just, that's not his game. Some nights it can be like when he's making that pull up mid range jumper, then he can, he could masquerade as a top option, but he's not, he's not good enough. He's not diverse enough. He doesn't have enough shot creativity to do that on a night in night out basis. So I think like a lot of pieces, you're just, you're, he's slightly in a different role than he should be. Like if he was a, a, a secondary or tertiary perimeter shot creator, I think he would fit in a lot better than you'd really appreciate his all around game. There's very few on the basketball, few things on the basketball court. He's just completely incapable of doing not a whole lot outside of man to man defense that he's, you know, exemplary at, but there's very little that he can't do. So I think he's a real good piece. I think he fits in well. I think Tobias Harris is a, a good piece who has gotten significantly better defensively. But when you start asking them to sort of be your primary pick and roll threat, they're like I said, lack of shot diversity, lack of creativity in terms of creating for their teammates, lack of ability to get to the all the way to the rim and really force rotation defensively. It really starts to show. And I think that's why, like, I think when fans get frustrated at Richardson or at Harris, I think it's mostly because they just don't they're lacking that one other piece that sort of makes everything fall into place. On top of that, given everything that happened in the summer, and I, I mean, I just said that Richardson. Why? What happened? <laughs> yeah, just just a, just a few a few little moves on a team that finished a couple bounces away from the Eastern Conference Finals is that it will be very difficult to not only get that extra guy in addition to what they already have, but even to remake this roster should it not work perfectly. And I mean. I, I, there, of course, and I'm sure you hear these voices more loudly than I do, are those that want many dramatic overhauls. But I think, you know, with Horford and Simmons and Tobias Harris all making a ton of money, I presume they don't want to trade Joel Embiid, so we don't even need to talk about that. It, like, if it doesn't work, and it's going to take a, a, a while, at least the rest of this season, maybe next, to figure out whether this quote unquote works, something that I think is just Elton Brand has put a lot of pressure on himself is that reforming this team unless unless it's because it's like somehow it happens where players don't decrease their own value you know like so the idea that like if the if the Sixers don't work but Simmons is great well then maybe you could theoretically trade him but that's that doesn't really make much sense but do you get where I'm getting with the oh, sure. get with the idea that let's like well this is pretty much your team at least for the for the near term yeah I mean outside of Matisse Thibel and and what was at that point the 24th pick in the draft you can make an argument that pretty much every other asset you have is worth less than it was a year ago at this time um, in Tobias Harris case, because of that new contract, Al Horford, similarly Ben Simmons, because he's now a year further along without developing that jump shot, uh, Josh Richardson, because he's a, you know, a year closer to being a, a free agent who's going to be on a much more expensive contract than the one he currently is like, there's just not, you don't have nearly as much flexibility in terms of shaping your roster. Like, like you just said. So yes, I think they are, I don't want to say they're locked in because you can always, you can move good players. You're not going to get fair value, but maybe you get something that fits better. But I think one of the, one of the downsides you know with this Joel Embiid injury obviously you have the concern that he won't be in prime physical shape for the playoffs you have the concern over losing games and what that will do for for your seating but you also just you have less time to evaluate the starting the viability of the starting lineup and whether or not you think they can compete offensively at a championship level and I mean this is a team I think they played 19 games together as a starting lineup right now so they're certainly still in the very early stages of figuring things out and, and figuring each other out and evaluating what they can become and you're just not going to get that chance now before the trade deadline because of this injury. So it's an inopportune, not that there's ever an opportune time to lose your star big man, but it's a particularly inopportune time uh, because you were hoping to gain some more knowledge that now you won't. So I agree with you. I think they're, I think they're going to keep the, certainly that five together throughout the, beyond the trade deadline. I think this is the five that they're going to ride and die with this season. 
And it is if they do have to pivot off of that, it is it is a little bit tougher now than it would have been before, for sure. I'm happy you brought up Matisse Thibel. He has been a fascinating player to watch. Even, you know, I, I watch the Sixers obviously a lot less than you do, because I, I think about he's one of the few players ever that when I watch him, and this happened in the uh Nate and I did the the cast on Sixers Celtics. Seems like we've done Sixers games for all of our live shows recently. And um, or actually, sorry, that was Sixers Nets. And so I, I've spent a lot of time covering, you know, I'm, I'm geographically close to Clay Thompson. Clay Thompson is a player who his impact on the defensive metrics has always been understated because he he's the type of player that they're never going to, that a model isn't going to get because he never gets steals and blocks. Thibault is interesting because he, he is a really good defensive player, but he gets those types of things. And I'm, I've been wondering just how how all of those things are going to tie together because he is an obviously destructive player and I mean that Nets game was a really great example he was just vexing various different Nets but then he also got beat for some back cuts and foul trouble and all that kind of stuff so let's start with just the defense what have you seen from him so far and how do you think how do you think it evolves from this point for him yeah I mean the 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 playmaking is really out of this world like the, the instincts he has to chase blocks and steals that I don't like he 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 makes plays that nobody else would even attempt. And at the beginning of the year, there was some bad in that. Like he I think he needed to learn sort of like that controlled aggressiveness and and figure out what would have worked in college that now won't work now in the NBA. But I think after about the first few weeks, I think he started to make real progress in that. And a lot of the gambles he took were more frequently succeeding. And, and some of the fouls that he was getting called for, some of the back cuts that you mentioned, not that they weren't there, but they, it became a much more livable trade-off. And his, it, it really, I've, I've just, I've never seen instincts quite like that. Like there is not a chase down block that he doesn't think he can get to. There's not a, you know, block from behind that he doesn't believe he can, he, he, he can alter. Uh, he, he makes plays that is really eye-opening and his combination of instincts and, and, fluidity and movement and length it's really it's i mean it's, it's fun to he is one of the more disruptive defenders i've seen in quite some time obviously that comes with trade-offs his his fouling has been a real issue at times his he, he can certainly get beat with back cuts but in terms of his defensive upside I, I i i'm quite optimistic about it like i think he will i think he's a smart enough player and a disciplined enough player that i think he's going to figure out that balancing act and sometimes it, it is walking a tightrope but i think he's already made progress in that you know, I think what's going to be really interesting is is offensively. Like, can he? He has a combination right now of a low usage but also low efficiency offensive player. And like, I think something like sixty percent of his his shots are coming from the three point line. He's actually he's actually making them at a good clip. Like, he had a again his start to the season was dreadful. Like, I think he was shooting like twenty five percent from three over the first couple of weeks of the season. Uh, the Sixers made a pretty strong point to him, like, hey, you're not you're not JJ Redick. Stop trying to shoot rising up off of these DHOs. Stop trying to shoot on the move. Just limit yourself to catch and shoot and transition threes and things of that sort. And then he had a a, a month where he couldn't miss. And he was he was making pretty much every three point shot he threw up there. And then he, he missed a couple of weeks because of an injury. He come back and uh, he, he struggled a little bit since then. But if his three point shot is real and you add that to transition to a you know a real transition game to that defense, you know I think he's going to be a real a real piece. I, I think he is a, a a a good rotation player. What does that mean upside long term? I don't know. He has a lot to work on in terms of his ball handling and shot creation and shooting on the move and and finishing at the rim and and taking care of his turnovers and all of that stuff. But he that combination of of three point shooting, which I I do believe in the shot to some degree. I think he's going to be at least a passable, if not a, a an above average three point shooter 
And if that happens, then his defense, I think, is going to be like, I don't have any question whether or not you're going to live with the trade-offs of his gambling style. Yeah, I, I agree on the defensive end. And he he does kind of bend your mind a little bit because, as you said, trying things that other people don't. And so you have to kind of calibrate and adjust based on that. And I think the there will be times that if, if he ends up being the player that I think you and I both think he can be in an important part of a successful team's rotation, and if not as a starter, you know, as a, as a key six man, which it looks like he's going to be this year, is, you know, there'll be nights where that gets him in trouble. So I think as from a team building perspective, you probably want to have another guy on the guard rotation for those nights when he gets three quick fouls and you're just like, well, crap. I mean, that's going oh, yeah. to happen. But yep, for sure. Offensively, the thing that's been more stunning to me is not that he's shooting... 42% from three on about four and a half per 36 minutes. It's that he's shooting 38% from two. Yeah. And the turnover rate, I think I'm not as worried about that. I think it'll tone down with time and coaching and development, all that kind of stuff. Like, I mean, and it's not like some of them are just like, to me, it's him getting like Thibault getting ahead of himself, that kind of thing. And, and usually the adjustment from college to the NBA helps clean up some of that type of stuff. It's, and so I'm not as I'm freaked out, but like, yeah, I mean, he's shooting 50% around the basket. He's shooting 20% from floater range. And those are small amounts of attempts because he doesn't, the, the floaters and the mid rangers because he's, you know, he's not, he's a low usage guy and that's a low part of his low usage. But I, I, I that, as long as he can kind of like trim some of the fat, which is hilarious to say for a guy who only takes 12% of the shots when he's <laughs> on the floor and just, and also maybe create a little bit more through, some of the stuff I actually just talked about with Ben Simmons of like getting a little bit more creative with your cuts and finding finding little places to attack without sabotaging. And some of that could also be easier when you play in lineups that have more spacing and some of the other kind of stuff. But what I what, what's interesting to me about Thibault, and this some of this is going to be personal for him and the Sixers can direct development to an extent during the offseason, is is he willing to accept the early stages of development being offensively, being more of a like doing the steps that are necessary to become an effective lower usage guy. Because some players don't like that because the, those types of things aren't as fun to work on. You know, the three-point yeah. shot you can do. But, you know, like just mentally taking the time to not think about mistakes. Because remember what his defensive approach is. And so I, I, there's a part of me that thinks you'll always take the bad with the good with him, like if that's what it takes, but how much of it you can strip out. But at the same point, he's 22, and he does a lot of other things really well. And that kind of ties in with Ben Simmons to a weird way, which is when you do things well that other people do not early in your career, then sometimes you can focus the development, the time that you have to develop, mostly in the offseason, onto other things, and that gives you more time to improve it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And look, he, he's probably never going to be a guy that you're going to say, like, go create your own. Like, his, his unassisted shots should be almost nil. And that I'm not sure that's ever really going to change. Like he just does not have the the ball handling. Yeah, and, to that, really and that's create not that a much. bad thing. And and I, no. I think and also for Thibault in particular, I think being on a good team early in his career is going to help that because it's a lot easier to tell a guy, hey, don't handle the ball; it's going to screw up our team. When you're winning 55 games and competing for championships, than right. when you are winning 25 games and he's like i'm just as good as all these other guys yeah but i i think you're right next steps are you know find out ways to move off the ball and get get easier shots at the rim shots where you're not going to be contested quite as heavily because he struggles to finish through contact uh find ways to like some of the three-point shots i cut out early in the season find ways over the next couple of years to add that back into his his game i think he can eventually become you know someone you can run off of screens and pin downs and and, and dribble handoffs 
I think he has that in him in the future. I think that's where you're going to see a lot of the future improvement in those two areas more so than like you're ever going to put him in a pick and roll. Uh, I'm just not sure that's really. And like you said, that's fine considering everything else he adds to the table. Lots more to talk about with Derek, but first a message from betonline.ag. We are into conference championship Sunday for the NFL. It will be a stressful one for me as a lifelong San Francisco 49ers fan. They face the Packers and Aaron Rodgers, the guy I wanted them to draft so desperately years ago. But also, of course, Titans Chiefs after that completely bonkers weekend that we saw last time. And if you want to be involved in that or plenty of fun NBA games all the time, including Lakers Rockets on Saturday night, which should be really fun, use betonline.ag and do the podcast one promo code, which gives you a 50% sign up bonus and helps us because it tells them that you came from us and that hopefully means that they advertise further and whatever you're into whether it's a game that you're going to watch anyway conference championship sunday is a big one of those for football fans or nba stuff or you think you know something and you you want to try to press your advantage there whatever you want to do betonline.ag has it for you and in-game betting is really fun i've gotten into that a little bit with the nba and trying to get a feel just you know seeing if you can if you could beat the models if you know sub patterns or just how how the game is going you can check that out too but whatever you're into betonline.ag use that podcast one promo code for a 50 percent sign up bonus betonline.ag your online sportsbook experts considering the significant contract he got it is pretty amazing we're well over half an hour into this podcast and we haven't talked much about tobias harris Harris getting that huge, the Sixers trading for him, that massive package, and I want to talk about that after this. But we'll start with Harris himself, which is, you know, part of the idea was to have somebody else who can initiate a little bit, but also can space the floor and be a part of the system defensively. Now we're we're closer to a year in. How are you feeling about, let's call it year one of the Tobias Harris experiment? So, I mean, it's, it's tough in a couple of respects. I think they overpaid in that trade. And I think this is a front office that by and large has has looked at a lot of opportunities as like, we can't let this one pass up. And I think they've always given up that one extra piece that maybe they didn't need to. There's like a, I don't a direction that doesn't seem, it, it seems like they're bouncing around from opportunity to opportunity a lot lately. I think they gave him a little bit too much money in free agency. You know, I think they felt, I mean, look, if they would have let him walk, they wouldn't have had money to sign anyone else. So I understand why they, they didn't have the leverage there, but I do think his contract is a concern. But I also think he's made some improvements this year, mostly defensively. Like, I think he's become a much more capable man-to-man defender. And when he, you know, at previous years, I would have said he was maybe slightly below average. Now I'd say he's slightly above average, which he's not going to win any defensive player of the year awards. He's not going to be on an all-defensive team. But when he's your worst defensive player in the starting lineup, you know, that can be that can be interesting. So I give him a lot of credit for, like, a lot of times when you've been in this industry so long and you hear someone say, like, oh, I've, I've really tried to work on my man-to-man defense in the summer— you, you sort of roll your eyes and go, oh, okay. Uh, and I think he's sort of the exception to that. Like, I do think he has become a, a better man-to-man defender and a more committed man-to-man defender. And I give him a lot of credit for that. His offense, you know, he struggled a lot from the perimeter to start the season. He's now up to, I think, about 36% from three. So his shot has has come back. He gives them, you know, for a team that can't really create off the dribble, his ability to get to his sort of mid-range pull-up spots has been has been necessary He's just, he's like a lot of different pieces where it's just, there's, he's slightly miscast. Like he, he just, there's no creativity in terms of creating for others. He doesn't really get all the way to, to, to the rim. He doesn't get the free throw line all that much. So he can be a little bit streaky in that regard. But it's like, if he was, again, your third option, your third scoring option, your second perimeter shot creator, I'd like him a lot more. And I don't really blame him for not having those skills. I blame the Sixers for not getting that lead 
shot creator from the perimeter, which sort of makes everything fall into play. So I worry about the contract. I worry about the inflexibility in terms of if you needed to move off of him. But I, I certainly don't think he is a problem for this team offensively as much as it's just he's he's slightly miscast in his role. Yeah, and I feel like for me, there are times when Tobias Harris becomes a symptom of the team building frustration, kind of like you, are, you, you said there, where he's asked to do things that he can't really do and that's not his fault because he just can't do it. And Harris is a, yeah, I've been impressed with his defense too. I think that, you know, being a lesser cog in the machine has made life a lot easier for him. And, but he has done, he has done an important job of improving too. Like just be some, some players could use that as like an excuse. And I mean, you you could see that all around the league, especially with smaller guards of getting better talent. They're not really doing better, but they're, but the team is succeeding more because they have other guys and then eventually that usually hits a wall because opponents improve when you get into the playoffs and the higher stages. I'm not seeing that as much with Tobias Harris, but we're kind of dancing around the the big question here, and Harris is is a part of this too, which is the Sixers, as much as we have, you know, we have these data points for the good games they played, how they fared against the best teams in the league. The reason I didn't have them in the top tier of championship contenders at the start of the season was that once you get into a seven-game series against an opponent who gets a lot more ability to adjust to what you do and to try to take away things and experiment and play their best players more— that my concern was that the Sixers offense wouldn't be able to put it together consistently enough unless they can get a lot in transition, which they might be able to because their defense has still has that monstrous ceiling. And that concern for me has not gone down really at all so far this season. No, I would I would, I would agree with you. I, I would say it is, has gone up for me. And I think I, I was right there with you. I didn't expect this to be a top 10 offense. I don't know exactly where they stand now. I think they were in the 13, 14 range earlier, you know, maybe like a week ago. But I would say that they have slightly disappointed offensively. But I think the weaknesses are like they having them confirmed has, you know, I think lowered maybe some of the, uh, the, the ceiling on this team. You know, I do think they're still good enough defensively where in a seven game series they could surprise. Uh, they could have a hot shooting streak. They could their, their defense could carry them. Their transition game could become unlocked. Like, I don't give them no chance against the Bucks, but I don't, if you ask me to put them in a tier, I certainly agree with you. They're not in that tier and they haven't been, like I said, at the beginning of this podcast, it's so tough because their defense has not reached the level we think it can reach very frequently so far this year. And does that mean that the ceiling isn't there or, or can they dial that up in the playoffs? Their offense has been maddening, but can they get hot for a seven game series? Like going back to Tobias Harris, part of the problem you'd love for him to be a higher volume three-point shooter. And he's just, he doesn't seem comfortable doing that. Like he's always going to want to take one or two dribbles in and get a pull up just to sort of get him going. But like, can they, can they get hot from the perimeter? Can some of those reluctant three-point shooters all of a sudden just get on a hot streak? And can that change their shot profile? Because now they have more confidence. It's a, it's a good question, but I certainly agree with you. They're not, they're not one of the top three to five teams in the NBA right now. And I don't, I don't necessarily think for as much as I don't feel like I have a grasp of this team, I don't think that's going to change. I just wonder whether or not they can, like I said, get going for a seven-game series and surprise someone. Well, I think one data point there that I think is really compelling this year is half-court offense. So right now, the Sixers are about middle of the league overall. They're 95 points per 95 points per 100 possessions in the half-court, and that sounds bad, but that's actually around league average because teams don't do that, and teams, teams aren't generally successful in half-court offense. They're more successful in transition. But one of the things that I think is really interesting about this team, and so I brought up that, that, 95, that 95 offensive rating. 
Their half-court offensive rating when Joel Embiid is on the floor is also 95. They've yep. been higher in previous years, and I just find that absolutely fascinating. Like usually, it yeah. used to be. It used to be they're great. They're not great, but they're usually pretty good to very good when Embiid's on the floor, and then they fall off a cliff when he's not. Yeah. So it, it, it's some of their best uh, outside of maybe the last couple of weeks because when their three-point shooting fell off a cliff, it was like all their numbers suffered. And this is a, a yeah, team and, without and Embiid, and Embiid was on the floor then, and he hasn't been on it for some of the improvement. Yeah. And when Embiid's not on the floor, like they really rely on that three-point shooting more than they do otherwise. But some of their best offense this year has come when Al Horford has been at center and the Al Horford at center experiment has been not experiment because he played, played a lot of that in previous years, but the experience here in Philadelphia has been, I think a little underwhelming defensively. And I think part of that is on the coaching staff. Like I think they stuck Horford sort of in that same drop coverage. They like to play and beat in. I'm not sure that necessarily plays to his strengths. That's not what Al's comfortable with. So that's one of the areas where like when the playoffs roll around, I expect them to make that adjustment. And already, they've started to do that already. But their defense has not been good enough without Joel Embiid on the court. But their offense at times with Al at center has been some of the best they've run all season. And you start looking at some of the pairings with, and, and part of the reason that the offense has not dropped when Embiid's gone to the bench. So like Embiid's minutes outside of the starters tend to be very bench heavy. Trey Burke, Furkan Korkmaz, Mike Scott, James Ennis, like they like to buy minutes with Embiid on the court with their other bench pieces. Whereas when Horford's at center, it tends to be with Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris and more of your starter starting lineup. Uh, so they've they've sort of found that pairing with Horford and Simmons and the two-man game they can play and sort of like that not traditional pick and pop because Ben Simmons doesn't really run much pick and roll, although he's, he's run a little bit more lately. But it's sort of like that high-low pairing where you can have Horford draw his man out to the top of the key, uh, use the threat of his shot to sort of open up his his passing game. So I think you've seen a lot, and then you can you run cutters off of uh, off of him. You can find post-up mismatches with Harris. Uh, you can do some stuff with Josh Richardson. It is uh, we have seen some of the best offense without Joel Embiid on the floor, and I don't think, like I said, I don't. I think the way not to read that is that Joel Embiid makes the offense worse because I don't think that's true. Like I think he's a very positive offensive player. I think it's a combination of they like to run a lot of bench lineups with Embiid to buy minutes while the rest of the starters rest. And also that the Sixers have sort of like a one too many problem. Like they have a big plus one problem where so much of their struggles are because they just have too much of too many big men who should be centers offensively. Too many role, big men who want to roll to the basket off a of pick and roll. Too many big men who want to post up when they have a mismatch. And it just clutters everything up. And it's not so much that you need to get rid of Embiid to solve that. It's you need to get rid of one of those big men to solve that. And I think if you look at some of the lineups with Embiid and Simmons without Horford, I think they have some really good offensive numbers too. So I think it, it is more symptomatic of like there's just this team is improperly constructed offensively. And when you remove any one of those big men, it, it, it opens things up. I think that's a really good diagnosis. And uh, I was going to go in a different direction. And I'll wait on that to be, to for this, which is, do you think there's a way to fix that? Like, it, it doesn't have to be now. And I think we both agree that it won't be now. But do you think July or February of 2021 that there is a conceptual move that is realistic that could solve the big plus one problem? I mean, I, 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 I question Al Horford on his team long term. You know, I think I question whether or not he can, you know, it's great they solve the backup center problem. And last year, if you look at some of the plus minus in that Raptor series, it is still to this day, you know what, nine months later, completely mind blowing. I mean, what this looks like a plus 100 when Embiid was in a the game, and then like a negative 100 and like, I don't know, eight minutes a game when he was off the floor. It was staggering. So solving that should have been a problem. But in order to invest four years, 109 million, and really the only chance you had to use cap space 
for the foreseeable future, Al Horford needs to be able to play alongside Embiid and between Embiid and Simmons. And I'm not convinced he's going to find a role that he's comfortable with. I'm not convinced you're going to be able to put him in enough pick and pops to put him in where he's comfortable offensively. I'm not convinced he's going to be really comfortable as a high volume spot up shooter the way they need him to be. And I worry quite a bit whether or not that's tenable long term, especially as he ages and maybe becomes a slightly less viable defensive center. So it is it. I'm 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 concerned about that. Yeah. So then the the framework there would be Horford for a probably a small who can run pick and roll and and hit shots. Yeah. And that's that's tough because I feel like the interest in Al Horford around the league is going to be a pretty narrow set. Yeah. So I, I, finding... I, will, I will say there has been movement or there have been discussions because for obvious reasons involves a lot of star power about Simmons and D'Angelo Russell being involved in a trade. Sure. Depending on how the Warriors see the present and the future, Russell and Horford as principals in a trade could be really interesting. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Russell Simmons stuff, I don't I mean. Part of it, I'm not, I don't follow the draft like I used to. And I, I, people who have followed me know that that used to be like my primary focus. And now covering the Sixers, I just, I don't know this draft class as well to determine whether or not that draft pick has that kind of value. Um, certainly flattening of the lottery odds decreases that. I think a lot of the uncertainty at the top of this draft this year, I, I that is not something, and as much as D'Angelo Russell might fit from a skill set standpoint, I think Ben Simmons is a very significantly better player. And it's not even really all that close in my mind. So that would not have a ton of interest for me. But if you're talking about Horford, that's a little more, you know, I, I'm not sure I see that being likely, um, but I, I, I could see that more from the Sixers standpoint for sure. Well, and, and the other part of it is I think Simmons, because of his, his the, the, the extremes of his game and his also his upside, it might, might, I think it's harder to make a Simmons trade than a Horford trade. And the, the Sixers have the flexibility that, yeah, of course, you want the best player possible for that niche that we just talked about of the initiator who can also catch and shoot but there's a lot of variance within that world you know like you can they're they're really good players they're you know more gap filler type guys and so I think that it's possible that you know if if you think and I think this might be right that Horford is the odd man out well you're not going to get as good of a piece but you can get one that that potentially works and that that might be the next the next gamble is that as opposed to something bigger like moving Ben Simmons um, but I want to move on. The, la- the last kind of big topic that I want to discuss is whether Brett Brown – and this the, this came up, and I, I got really frustrated by this a couple times with Al Horford's defense. Like they were basically just putting Al Horford in the Sixers' standard defense. And what I've been thinking about a lot – because you know the Sixers, we know how good they can be and everything else is evaluating them from a playoff perspective. And one of the important elements of a successful team – is that is the ability to be a counterpuncher and the ability to adapt to situations when you have to create a different advantage or when another team takes away what you do well. And what I want to ask you is, from what you've seen, do you think Brett Brown and the coaching staff has that element so that if, whether it's the Bucks or if they make the NBA Finals, if it's any one of those Western Conference teams, takes away something that they do well or just has the right personnel, that they can that they can do something else that they can counterpunch that they can zag instead of zigging. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. You know, I think Brett sort of subscribes to the pop philosophy of like in the regular season I think he wants to run his scheme over and over and over and over again and drill that down almost irrespective of the opponent so that they have all of those principles down by the end of the season. Um you know, Pop very frequently says, you know, I'm we don't do everything perfect, so why should I focus on the other team? And clearly he doesn't believe that in the playoffs. But in the regular season, I think there's a little bit of that 
to Pop and then to Brett as well. So I think part of that, and I agree with you, like how they were using Horford at center was 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 not optimal. But that's one of the situations where I can see them completely pivoting out of that when the playoffs come around. And I think in 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 years past, you know, the Sixers pretty famously do not help off of three point shooters. Like I think I think they still give up the fewest three point attempts in the league. They really want to run guys off the three point line and funnel them into Embiid, and they're just they're not going to leave guys in the corners. And they pretty much did that last year. It's a little more extreme this season. But when the playoffs rolled around, like they helped off of Pascal Siakam every chance they could, especially when he was above the break. Uh, And you can't do that this year because Siakam just improves by leaps and bounds every season. But last year, he I think he was shooting like 20 something percent above the break. So they they were real aggressive in helping off of him. And that's something you really didn't see them do at all in the regular season. So defensively, I think they're going to make adjustments, which is part of the reason why I think this team has more defensive upside than they have shown on a consistent level so far in the regular season. Offensively is where I become a little more concerned, in part because I just don't think this these five fit well, and in part because when you get in the playoffs is when you can really start taking away a team's, capitalizing on a team's weaknesses. And with a team that has such a pronounced weakness, I'm not sure it's a creativity and a coaching problem as much as it is a, 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 a roster and a skill set problem. Like you, you can you can take Ben Simmons and what he doesn't do and use that to your advantage much easier in a seven game series. But because other teams, teams that tend to get to the final, say, four of the NBA playoffs tend to have a lot of really good, versatile defenders. And the, the size mismatch isn't going to be as pronounced, but also because you have seven games to go back and forth and game plan and scheme and adjust. And I think the weaknesses the Sixers have are like they they concern me a lot offensively. So I guess to answer your question, I have confidence defensively that they'll make the first of a seven game series. Uh, I I worry quite a bit whether or not they can make the adjustments offensively to have this team executing at a level they need to. There's a fascinating duality that exists because what you just were talking about is something that I've said about Jason Tatum before, which is the idea that the best teams have a higher proportion of people who can defend him. And so that means that he's going to have to have more in his game than he does. And incidentally, Ben Simmons is part of the reason I say that about Jason Tatum. However, the Celtics and a couple other teams can counter the other way and just make life harder for Ben Simmons offensively. And you're right, that's going to be a huge storyline. And what I think this is kind of the way to end this, even though, you know, I I hope we talk between now and and the end of the season, the playoffs and all that, but a, a point that is just so crazy, and there might be no better representation of this than the quadruple doink, is how close these margins are. And these are legacies and personnel decisions that are not just decided by a seven-game series, but decided by a few bounces within a seven-game series. But that's the nature of the thing we're covering, the thing we're discussing, and it's it's pretty insane. It really is. And I mean, it's a team that they were up two to one against Toronto. They were up big in game four. They could have virtually ended that series well before we got to the quadruple doink. Uh, but you're right. Like there's these are moments that are like how different would Kawhi's legacy be if he doesn't even get a chance to take that shot? How different would the Sixers legacy be if they would have held on in game four? Would we be having these same conversations of do you need to blow this team up? And when you start writing that narrative on something that is so fragile, it is a it, it's great theater, which makes our jobs just fantastic. But B, it, 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 I do not uh, envy the decision makers who have to either fight against that narrative and say, no, that doesn't really like that's not representative of this team or their upside or what they can be or who have to then react to it. It's a it's a it's it's fascinating. It's a really no other industry where you are so reactionary to public. Well, not no other industry, but it's an industry where you are very reactionary 
to public demands and public sentiment and navigating that and the narrative is it's it's fun it's fun it's fun it would be an insane challenge to be in a front office and and deal with all that and i mean also then all the other factors like injuries and things that are outside of your control that are completely crazy uh, is there anything else that uh, I mean we've we've covered we've covered a lot in this in this about an hour? Um, is there anything else that you feel like is worth bringing up Sixers or anything else? I'm opening the floor to you. Oh, um, I guess I'll I'll ask you a question. Uh, sure. I, I don't get to do that much on this podcast. Who do you think they should target in, uh, in at the trade deadline? It's a shame Landry Shamit isn't available. <laughs> That's the other thing we were going <laughs> to discuss was yeah. I, I think they gave up I think they gave up way too much for Tobias Harris. If they identified him as the right guy, I wish they would have had a little bit more patience. Um, yeah, because, like, I mean, so for me, the Sixers are going to be making moves more around the margins. Um, yeah, because I don't, like, I I would be very interested conceptually in a guy like Bogdan Bogdanovich for them, but I don't know how they get him. So that's really a challenge, the Sixers, man. I think they're going to be more on the buyout market than the trade market, and for buyouts, you're a little bit more dependent on just who's available, but any capable creators that get bought out. And I think one thing that probably hurts them is that like Jeff Teague, yep. you know, maybe if things had soured enough in Minnesota and he had stayed there, maybe they would have bought him out in March. But now that he's on Atlanta, I think that he'll be around there for a while. So, but I, I, I just thinking about where the Sixers are and everything. And what's funny is I'm probably wrong because Elton Brand has been so much more aggressive at the deadline than I, than I would have been in his shoes. Like both of the last two years or like last year, sorry, last year. And then in, in July, so maybe he does it again, but I see them more as a buyout team. Do you agree with me? Yeah, I mean Teague was one that I thought was interesting because they have had no ability to match his salary. I think he makes yeah. what, like nineteen million, and they just don't have that kind of, of of filler salary. You know, I think someone like in the Malik Beasley type role, like like vein, if he becomes oh, available, if they, because if they could get Wancho, that would be an yeah. interesting little a little wrinkle. Somebody who I think has been underutilized. Yeah, the, and and that would actually um, depending on and like how Denver's much- tough because like at, at some level, like you would like to keep him as insurance in case there's an injury or, or something of that sort. Um, yeah. Beasley, I'm talking about, but he's also a restricted free agent who's who's clearly not happy with his playing time. So get something while you can. But someone small in that that sense, I think, yeah, is and probably I, more. I, I do like your idea, um, as long as ownership's willing to spend on it, of getting somebody who is a pending free agent that had that they could have rights on that could be viable, because that's a smart thing for proactive capped-out teams to do. And I think yeah. that somebody is going to do a really good job of that this deadline, and, and, and it will end up working out well for them, and a lot of other teams are going to stay too conservative, and that will hurt them. Because I actually have a piece coming out maybe maybe early next week for The Athletic on this, which is basically this weird confluence that happened with basically everybody and their mother having space in 2018 – or sorry, 2019 – is that there are all these teams in, this, in the netherworld between the cap and the tax for 2020. And so they actually have more capacity to spend, but you can't spend it on new additions and you can spend it on holdover guys. So the Sixers yep. are in a different boat because they're probably going to be a tax team. But it's the same mentality of if you want to improve your team, you actually do it by getting pending free agents. Yeah, yeah, it will be a it'll be an interesting interesting time because this team definitely has some weaknesses. Oh, can... th- that's one other quick thing. Um, there are pretty much six top teams in the in the Eastern Conference right now. Let's exclude the Bucks because we kind of know that story. Of the of the remaining four, who do you think are particularly good or bad matchups for the Sixers? Favorable or unfavorable? Let's put it that way. It's hmm, a good question. So I think I think. Usually when you ask me good matchups, you start off with Joel Embiid. Who can match up with Joel Embiid? And the only one outside of the Bucks who have really a big man who you would look at is Toronto. So I think they would be a tough matchup for the Sixers. At least when I say tough matchup, I mean like 
the they would have the Sixers would have they would have more of a chance of stopping the Sixers than maybe they would have a generic Eastern Conference contender. The other teams, I think the Sixers match up pretty well against. And it's tough to see sometimes because, like like I said, the last two games against Indy were without Joel Embiid. And he's really, like, Miles Turner just struggles against Joel Embiid. And there's a, a physicality that he can't match, and Embiid, Embiid gets up for that matchup. Um, same thing with Miami. As, as great as Bam is, like, Embiid has his way against him. And same thing with Daniel Tice. So I think those three teams specifically, I think the Sixers have a decent chance. Like, if you're asking me which team might they have more success offensively than maybe you would expect, it's sort of those three teams because I don't think they can match up with Embiid. But that also assumes that Embiid can look like Embiid in May, which is still to be determined. I do worry a little bit about Brad Stevens. He is so good in a playoff series, and he does such a good job of making you making the most of Ben Simmons' weaknesses that I think he would, you know, you would drop them a little bit. But I think they, and obviously we have no idea how Indy will look when when Oladipo comes back and that will change things completely. But I think in just in terms of a matchup, strengths, weaknesses, I think the Sixers match up pretty well. And like Ben Simmons just, he engulfs Jimmy Butler when they go head to head. So I think that helps match up too. I actually think the Sixers, when they get in the playoffs against some of these teams, these non-Milwaukee teams, I think they match up pretty well. And that mean, that doesn't mean that they can't lose, because especially with the way this team's offense is and how streaky they are and how reliant, reliant they are on Embiid and, and, and low-volume three-point shooting, that they could, I mean, they could just have four games where they look like they can't play offense. But I think in terms of matchups, strengths, weaknesses, I actually think they match up pretty well against those three. It's, it's only Toronto that I think they uh, they might struggle with. Yeah, and also Toronto, even though they lost Kawhi and Denny Green, they still have a lot of intelligent, active defenders, and I could imagine them kind of coming up the works against the Sixers pretty well. And I think Toronto's offense could struggle against Philly, but that could I could imagine that being just a rough series for a lot of different... And, Mar- and Marcus Sola has, of course, done well against Embiid over the years. Yeah, that seems like a pretty good diagnosis to me. And that's also part of why... Within the Eastern Conference hierarchy, I, I feel pretty good about the Sixers, you know, being kind of separate from those other teams as, as a playoff team in terms of seeding and all that. But there's this very specific other point there, which is worth bearing in mind for a long time, which is that's why the Sixers need to be out of the 4-5. Yeah. For me, I would rather see, like, I think it would be better for them to be the 6 than the 4 by a pretty significant margin. Hmm. I, w- I would have to think about that more, but I, I see where you're coming from. Yeah, just because um, facing the facing the Bucks, especially if it, I mean, depending on how you define success, some people would say, "Well, you have to, you're going to have to face the Bucks either way." And the Sixers, I think, match up reasonably well against the Bucks. But I think avoiding it for longer, first of all, that leads to the possibility of injury, but also just because you get in, if they're the only team that gives you a lot, a lot of trouble, well, then you want to you want to create the maximum chance that you don't have to face them. Well, and and this also loops back to our previous point: losing to the Bucks in the Eastern Conference Finals will be perceived as progress and losing to the bucks in the second round might cause sheer panic and when you talk about front offices and decision making that could have pretty drastic ramifications for the future of the team so from that perspective and from everything else you said in terms of injury and maybe another team just gets lucky and knocks them out then i would agree with you you want to you want to make sure you face them in the conference finals yeah and i don't now there is this interesting counter which i've actually i used a little bit last year because the how weird the west lineup was which is some teams you want to, you might as well just face them earlier if they're going to make it anyway. Um, but I think the Bucks might not be in that group, even though they're. I think they're going to make it through whoever else in the East they have to face because they're incredibly, incredibly good. But, well, and, and not not for a team that has lost disappointingly in the second round the last two seasons. Um, I don't think they have the the goodwill built up from the fan base or 
frank, frankly, the front office or an ownership group that can see through tough times and stick the course. So I think you want to make sure, like I said, the appearance of progress, I think, is real important for this team. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking time. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks again to Derek Bodner for taking the time to come on. You can read him at The Athletic, and you can follow him on Twitter at Derek Bodner NBA, D-E-R-E-K-B-O-D-N-E-R-N-B-A. Love having him on, and yeah, the Sixers team is still confounding to me. Probably will be for significantly longer than right now, though, of course. Derek helped out with that. Not exactly sure where I'm going to go next, though, in the process of figuring out who I was going to have on this week, I actually sent out a bunch of feelers to people, some of whom will be coming on in the near term. So that's always exciting for me. Some really good people that I haven't had on in, in a little while. And if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, guests, whatever, really, NBA at gmail.com is the way to do it. If you take the time to write it, I will definitely read it. I try to respond, but I don't make a promise there. I just make a promise to read it because I do. There's a separate tab that they go to. I read all of those every day. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. I understand if it's not, but if you want to be super awesome and use a different player, you can leave a review both places, actually, and that really does help us out. Word of mouth, very big, single episode or the series. Tell people, tell people about it. Social media, in person, whatever makes you happy. And subscribing, downloading every episode really is appreciative. Helps the show because you can't get into a habit with this. We don't come out on a specific day of the week. It always comes out every week, but that part of it isn't specific. So subscribing is a really big way that you can help yourselves, hopefully, and definitely help me. And the most important thing for this show and the other that has them is to check out our sponsors for this episode. That is betonline.ag. Use that Podcast One promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus. Real GM Radio will be back next week. I don't know with whom or when, but we will be doing it. You can also check out my work. I have a couple pieces out at The Athletic. have a few more in the offing, including one that I talked about a little bit with Derek. Also, Dunked On, still going strong five times a week with Nate Duncan. Monday through Friday, basically, we record, yeah, that's close enough. And the live show, the NBA cast, we did actually did two live shows this week. One was on the NBA's official Twitch stream, which was awesome. And then we did our own live show. And we'll be back on Martin Luther King Day. We're going to be doing Lakers, Celtics. And if Memphis, New Orleans is close, it is the game immediately preceding it. We'll probably do some of that as well. That is more than enough for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. 